0: hey guys welcome back to the pre-production podcast thank you so much for listening again uh it's really nice to have you here i'm very excited to be talking to a filmmaker who's getting a lot of buzz right now for a new horror film he directed called the outwaters and that is robbie Banfitch sitting here with him thank you so much for joining me today the way we do it on the show is we kind of talk about where someone began with their love of movies or, or the desire to make movies or however it was for them And I'd love to hear how that started for you.
1: The first movie I remember watching was King Kong, like the black and white original King Kong. And then Jaws has been my favorite movie since I was little. I cried when they blew up the shark at the end and my mom was confused. Yeah, I loved the shark. I was three. I remember watching it. And then when the shark was like floating down at the end, I was crying and my mom was like, why are you crying? (laughs) I I think I also wanted the movie to continue because I just really loved it.
0: I remember seeing that for the first time too, but if it makes you feel any better, the shark from Jaws 4 is apparently related to the shark in Jaws 1 and is out for revenge. So at least they got some revenge.
1: There's actually a picture of me. I'll tweet it. There's a picture of me at age like 7 or 8 with the shark from Jaws 4 at Universal Studios. Wow. <laughs> one, of them, one of the
0: models, yeah. Well, that's amazing. So King Kong and Jaws, obviously very influential, but at this time, was it just sort of, I, I imagine it was sort of still like this magical thing that was a box showing you cool stuff. You weren't really thinking about it analytically or anything yet.
1: Yeah, probably. I remember I wanted to be a marine biologist and study great white sharks because of Jaws, and then I probably very quickly wanted to make movies because of Jaws. Like at that age where they start, where your parents start asking you what you want to be when you grow up, I was like, I want to study sharks. And then from a very early age, I started making movies and wanting to make movies. And then I think it started with like playing with my Fisher Price little people toys and having like, I had an actual King Kong stuffed animal, like an official King Kong stuffed animal. Licensed. Licensed from Universal Studios, Florida. And I would like make movies, but using the toys like we all do. I would do like Friday the 13th, but with like Barbies. Uh, (laughs) I, I literally like replayed Jason Takes Manhattan, but like with Barbies. (laughs) My first movie I made when I was 10, I think.
0: Was this your parents' camcorder? Was it a mini DV tape or was it VHS? It
1: was my aunt Mimi's VHS camcorder. And it was a movie called Monster Under the Bed. One of my cousins was under the bed grabbing stuffed animals. So the stuffed animals would disappear. That was my first movie. That doesn't exist anymore. The one that exists is called Escape from Bomb Island. And that's where I just lots of bombs going. It's a,
0: never mind. These are great titles, though. I mean, I completely understand what it's about when you say the title.
1: (laughs) So the the first movies I made, they had a lot to do with like monsters. And then I was super into Scream when that came out. So I was 11 or 12 when I saw Scream. And then me and my friends would try to, I did a bunch of slasher movies, lots of chase scenes. Very much loved Sarah Michelle Gellar's chase scene and I Know What You Did Last Summer.
0: Oh, my, me too, man. Like, honestly, she should have been the final girl in that movie
1: yeah so a lot of my early movies were like extended chase scenes but like through a condo apartment very elaborate chase scenes and all had to be edited in camera if the shot got messed up you have to like rewind and then record over it because that's the only way i could edit in sequence so the early movies were edited in camera
0: the first few that i shot were also the same way you could you could start to hear me say like Okay, that's good. Like right before the cut, you know, you could hear, you could like hear that beginning of the, of me being like, good job. Cause I never said cut or action back and I didn't know what that meant.
1: There's all these cringy videos of like outtakes for me, like back when I was little, being like, and action. I have no idea how many movies I made when I was in middle school and high school. Do you know the bold, black and white 50s movie, The Wasp Woman? I've heard of it. I did a remake called. Reptile Woman, which I filmed in black and white with this like rubber Dilophosaurus mask from Jurassic Park. My first experience of Psycho was actually the remake. So when was that 1998? So so I loved it because it's a great story and it had great actors in it and I didn't really know the old one, So that was my first experience of Psycho. And so I did a remake of Psycho as well. It was a musical remake featuring dance numbers. My mom must have known I was gay then. To Britney Spears. <laughs> remake of Psycho. Dance numbers to Britney Spears, Hit Me Baby One More Time, and Mr. Boombastic. You're just talking the greatest hits of my sixth grade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was Norman Bates and we I did the shower scene with my friend Nancy, who's now the voice of the flight attendant and the outwaters. So that
0: That's was That's so cool. Oh my god. Yeah, I had a I had the Hit Me Baby One More Time cassette tape. It was the first no, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was the okay. second. It was the second album I ever got. The first album was a one-hit wonder called "Return of the Mac" by Mark Morrison. <laughs> so you're making, you're remaking Psycho. You're inspired by Vince Vaughn and his wonderful portrayal of Norman Bates.
1: <laughs> and so... and I, I, if you watch that movie today, I'm, I'm trying to do Vince Vaughn's like intonations. I was like, well oh. he was so weird in that movie. I saw Candyman when it came out on video. So I was eight. Southern-y.
0: what you're saying is that you basically were allowed to watch kind of whatever you wanted and that kind of helped you get close to the horror thriller genre is, is that's kind of like where you most found yourself comfortable in, the, in that space
1: yeah the most of my early movies throughout middle school and early high school were horror and then i started getting more serious like my high school period of favorite movies it was gummo repping for a dream donnie darko jackie brown magnolia my high school films got a little like darker and there was one called beyond the shutters which was a girl who got like abducted and was stuck in the basement of a house black and white and pretty dark actually i wrote a poem based on that title and i got called into the guidance counselor's office to make sure i was okay
0: I was like, no, it's art. I don't want to use the word familiar. I guess I understand what you mean. Like, everything you're saying is is very relatable to me. I didn't get in trouble in school, but if I did get in trouble, it was probably because of something from my imagination that I might have drawn. And they're like, this looks creepy. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, are you going to do something bad at school? No, it's just a monster. You know, it's and so people would get, you know, there's that period where they're concerned about you. So I'm curious for you. Since you started making movies at such a young age, did you immediately think like, I would like to do this professionally? Or was it simply like, no, I just love doing this and it's fun and it's exciting to me?
1: I always knew that I wanted to, yeah, be a director and make real movies. But I also always knew that if I was even making movies with my friends, that would still make me happy. I wanted to be a director professionally, but I also knew that as long as I was making things and trying to get better each time and that that was also fine, which is probably how I was able to like work at a nonprofit for nine years and my 20s through my early 30s and like be sane. I knew I wanted to go to film school and all of that. So along my high school projects, basically I didn't want to write a paper, so I would convince the teacher so let me make a movie instead. So there's a like for example, it's from some science class, like somehow convinced the teacher to so let me make a documentary on the Jersey Devil, which exists on YouTube, but like when YouTube first started, so I uploaded it in like 2006 or seven or something, and the quality is not great, but it does it does live there. Devil of the Barrens. I went down to South Jersey and just interviewing random people, trying to figure out if they believe in a Jersey devil. And I actually found multiple people that told me personal stories of like, I was like wound up in people's houses. I'm like, wow, well, 16 or 17 in random people's houses. They're talking about their encounters with the Jersey devil.
0: So obviously you never really stopped working on things like this. This was a continuous process to just refine your craft. Well, from like age
1: 10 all the way through graduating from college, I went to School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, majoring in film. So all the way from age 10 to 21, I was constantly making things. I must have made 50 shorts and then my thesis film. And usually I had to do one or two end of the year films for school. But then I did stock as I moved to Hollywood and started working in, in the film industry. And I was just working in the film industry and reading scripts and like working every day. on film. So I, I wasn't. I was trying to write, but I would kind of be like exhausted with film stuff, and I I not stopped making after a couple of years in Los Angeles. I kind of missed the East Coast. I moved back home, got stuck a little bit, and then I moved back to LA. And then just the first job I got was like nothing related to film, and started just working and dreaming about making movies again. But I hadn't done anything in a long time. And then when I reached my like 30 years old or something, I was like, wait, I have to like make my movie. My, you know what I mean <laughs> it's like wait wait
0: I'm like I had the exact same experience not the exact same but I mean with with the 30 thing of thinking shit this isn't gonna fall in my lap and no one's gonna be down my door with a pile of scripts they want me to make so I really should write my own and I really need to get good at this
1: I got an internship at After Dark Films I was a die for that was around 2007 working there for like two years
0: is um, that around played, like, the uh, Lake Mungo times Definitely Lake Mungo was one of
1: our movies that I was there for. So I remember like looking at the cover art, like the post of being involved with trying to help out with posters, uh, but also I was answering the phones. That was amazing. It was so much fun. I served coffee to John Carpenter, which was like a big day for me.
0: I love Lake Mungo. That's one of my favorites. I really wish Joel Anderson would make another movie, goddammit. But this is something I think is important too for people listening. And, and a lot of guests have brought this up the idea of unpaid work doing what you love.
1: My plan was I know so much about horror movies. I want to get a job at an independent, it's very specific. So like I want to get a job at an independent horror movie company. So I called all of them that I liked. And then I got the interview for the internship, which was unpaid. My plan was to just make myself so useful that they had to hire me. So I worked there for like maybe two months for free. And then I was like, all right, but I, you know, I did know more about horror movies. And I think anyone that worked there would kind of like admit this. They knew that I knew more about like horror than most of the people that worked there. So I just made myself really useful. And then I was like, honestly, all right, well now I need to go get a real job where I get paid. So, you know, Buy guys. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. They just hired me. And it was cool because I got to do a little bit of everything. So I answered the phones, made coffee. Do you remember the French horror movie Frontiers? Yes. So we worked on that and I like wrote the trailer, like how the trailer should be. Oh, that's cool. Um, And they made it, but it was the Red Band one. So not a lot of people got to see that one. The one that I wrote. I got to do cool stuff like that. Read scripts, give notes on scripts, a little bit of everything. So it was just a whole lot of fun it was also, like, their offices were right by West Hollywood. So I got to, like, finish a day at work and then just go walk down to the gay bars and, like, party. <laughs> <You play it.
0: laughs> to me, like, everything you're saying is, like, the definition of make it or break it. You're out there just genuinely trying as hard as you can to be a part of this in any capacity. While reading other people's scripts, I imagine you came across a lot that people around you turned down or at least thought this is interesting. Did that teach you anything about what the industry was looking for?
1: I don't know. I just remember reading a lot of bad scripts, honestly. Yeah. I just like if I if you want to be honest, like in film school, all I ever heard was there's so many good projects out there and like it doesn't matter how great your project is, there's a lot of luck. To be real though, like the amount of scripts that I read. If, Even if one was mediocre, we all got excited.
0: You're absolutely right. And this is something I think a lot of people don't realize. If you can be good enough, people will pay attention to you. The thing about screenwriting and not so much directing, but screenwriting, people watch movies and they just think, well, I can do that. Because it was so well done, because all the departments came together. A great movie is an unheard of miracle. A movie getting made, period, is a miracle, but a great movie is a miracle. And when you look at something that seems easy, it wasn't. And so a lot of people start writing, and they start sending scripts in, because I want to make movies. I know what I watch a lot of movies. So I imagine you read quite a bit of shit.
1: Just the same shit over and over again. And nothing about most of these stuck out as... Anything other than a carbon copy of your official like screenwriting guidelines plus different character names and details of like what the threat was.
0: A bunch of writers read Save the Cat, thought, okay, I'm gonna do this formula and I'm gonna I'm gonna break into Hollywood.
1: It's my memory of it. But I just remember getting really excited anytime something was like not horrible and be like, Oh guys, this isn't horror. So after that, you said you moved back to New York for a while? Yes. I well, I had always wanted to go to Australia and I Thought, you only live once. So I quit my job and went to Australia for a month for fun. And then I moved back to New York City because I just missed New York. And then my dad got sick and got cancer and I moved back to New Jersey. was in New Jersey during that whole process as he was dying. And I was kind of stuck after he died. I had no money. I was like bar backing at a small gay bar in central New Jersey and working at like Barnes and Noble in the, in the film section for like $7 an hour. So... Luckily, I had enough DVDs to sell all my DVDs and buy a car again to drive back to LA.
0: That's a lot of DVDs. Of course, when, when was this,
1: 2011? Yeah, people still paid money for used DVDs back Yeah. Then. so this was 2011, but it did, and it was worth it, and then I got back here and got a job working at Greenpeace and just started working and kind of like daydreaming about making movies again i was making movies my whole life constantly up until after i graduated so i was starting to feel like the itch again
0: it's an interesting feeling that's difficult to articulate unless you have A passion that you're suddenly not doing but it does kind of feel like you've been deprived of something and i went through that a lot because youtube was a big distraction for me making short films as a kid and then into my 20s and suddenly having some success on youtube i kind of got really distracted by that and thought well this is maybe this is what i'm meant to be doing i'm sort of doing film stuff but not really and it's paying the bills and i think like you right around late 20s 30 I began to feel like I'm just missing something. Something's not here that I need.
1: Back in the early days of YouTube, I had my channel, Some Tips for Life, which was like gay dating cringe. It was all like improv, like awkward between two ferns type of stuff. Like I would do really inappropriate, offensive like interviews and just make them as awkward as possible. Like gay bar rejection tutorial. So i got also was like doing all this youtube stuff which was really fun i made a lot of friends through the early youtube days talking like 2008 9 10. all my close friends are from that whole time i was also dealing with my dad dying the comedy thing the improv comedy stuff on youtube was just like very fun
0: those were the most like uh, wholesome years of youtube it felt like everyone on it was nice and doing their thing and when i started my channel there were if you can believe it there were only like four or five people talking about movies on the entire platform like mm-hmm. it was it's crazy to even think that but so you started doing YouTube channel stuff and you're in Greenpeace, you said. Mm-hmm. I'm curious at what point movie making came back into your life.
1: Well, there's a thing that happens when you fall in love or feel like you're in love that you want to, it kind of brings out the best in you, you know? Yeah. And I was like, having that whole thing going, I was like, oh, I really want to make my art again. I didn't have working cameras anymore. I didn't have any money. So I just... Used what I could was I have to make something like I have to make a short or something like that. The only camera I had was the MacBook Pro camera in the computer, the laptop camera, webcam, webcam. Yes, there you go. So I made a short film called Advent. I used an actual like wheelchair, put the laptop on it. It was like rolling a wheelchair down the streets of Los Angeles, getting tracking shots. i used air quotes. It's about a psychic who has a vision of a murder in an apartment and it's all told without dialogue. I made that, and that was just really great for me to be
0: able to make something. Soderbergh did that unstained movie. He had his actress in a wheelchair pushing her around with the iPhone and getting those tracking shots. And yeah, I mean, if you have it, you can use it. There's no reason you can't.
1: I was just happy to be making something. This is what I'm saying, like, yeah, of course, I want to have my main focus and to be able to make movies. And I would like to be able to work work on that all the time. It would be nice to make money doing that. But i was just happy making that short so that was the one that got me back into just making things like i always did before so by that point i was like five years into greenpeace and i was like well shit like i am a smoker and gonna die like soon probably sooner than most (laughs) and um i better make a feature now so i made my first i shot my first feature over the course of two years black and white for the people who really hate outletters this will be right up your alley. It's a black and white silent drama, Terrence Maliki thing. Most of the movies I made in middle school and high school that were serious didn't have dialogue because I always like the I knew the sound equipment wasn't good enough. So I was like, well, I know I could like tell a story visually, but like I'm not having like shitty sound. So I just did them silent. So I wanted my first feature to so be like everything I had learned telling stories so i shot that over the course of 2 years
0: and i'm assuming the people who helps you make the movie you're working around their schedules whenever they're free
1: yeah it was family and friends and i had been at greenpeace long enough that i had a sabbatical so i used the sabbatical to go make my first feature but i only had my like end of my paychecks like it wasn't like i didn't raise money for it it was just like friends and family and a guy was able to get a camera canon 70d same camera i shot out waters on it's great so i made it it's not out yet because it's a silent feature and it needs a score and didn't have money for that. And I still don't, so it's it's done other than the score.
0: I was looking at your IMDb and it seems like you have a couple of things in post that you've done recently.
1: Yes, yeah, so the new one Tinsman Road is my new feature that I shot while editing. See, once I get going, I'm like going, going. Like going.
0: let's just fucking go.
1: <laughs> Go, go, go. I had that long break of like moving and cancer with my dad and working at Greenpeace. And then I don't ever want to be in that place again where I'm like stuck not making things. It felt like a
0: waste. If you can come and say, look, I've got three features done and you can just watch them. They're rough cuts, but they're fucking done. And they're like, wow, OK. Or if you have 10 scripts, I got 10 scripts. I wrote them all. If you don't like this one, but you think it's OK, I've got nine others you can read, you know.
1: Well, this is one of the problems now is like I've been having these meetings because of outliers coming out. Yeah. Like, well do you have any scripts it's like well no because I made the, the, last, the last one I made it already it's coming so, I've got so movies in single. the can I'm in the can but I don't have a script after this stuff settles down with Outliers and then the new one that's coming out is going to premiere at a festival next month in San Francisco at the Unnamed oh, footage okay. festival after all that settles down Then I want to go somewhere. Hopefully I will have money to go somewhere and like write two scripts for a couple months. There's a million projects I want to make, but there's a few that I really, you know, that are up there in the forefront of the brain thing. So, yeah
0: that's fantastic though that you have things done already because a lot of people in the industry they have an idea of the kind of film that they want like producers i mean and executives and when they say that what they mean is they would love to get a script that's like that for their slate that they can develop but if you happen across somebody who already wants a kind of film that you've made and you can say actually i've already got it done you're a step ahead of the curve having m- movies in the can already
1: it's strange because I'm a step ahead, but I'm a step back because they still do want to see scripts and sure. I want to have a script because I want to make something else after Tinsman wrote. But yeah, I'm actually a step ahead, but a step behind. So I'm in purgatory.
0: Let's talk about the Outwaters a little bit because I'd love to hear how this came to be. I loved it. I think it is very unique. I've seen every found footage movie, you know, even like ones people don't talk about, I've seen them. And what I love about your movie is, one of the things anyway, is there are so many visual hints throughout the film early before shit hits the fan, so to speak, that when you see the rest of the movie, you think back and go, okay, so that's what that was. And I love shit like that. I fucking love shit like that. I love when you give the audience a hint of something, And you kind of make them go, like, what the fuck was that? As they watch the movie, it becomes clear and you kind of look at the movie in a different light. But it also, like, I'm not going to give anything away for people who haven't seen it. And I told you this after I saw it. I genuinely feel like the last half of the movie feels like you're watching someone having a psychotic meltdown while holding a camera. You know, I've seen, like, Hardcore Henry and movies like that where it's just, like, it, it designed to make you feel like you're watching something really intense and crazy. But The Outwaters just felt... Far more psychologically penetrating than any of those movies, I genuinely, really felt unsettled by it. I think it's really good, and that people should see it for sure. So first off, just some praise. Thanks for making the movie. No, it's ins- no it's problem. inspiring
1: <laughs> no problem, man. You may have to get into some fights over that one when this
0: airs because you know, oh well, listen, everyone feels thank. <laughs> That that's normal for especially for found footage. I mean, have you ever actually gone and read reviews for the Blair Witch Project? I mean people still I do every day to make myself feel better. There you go, man. There you go. I mean people still shit on that movie. So this is my
1: first experience having a movie out in the world and I made the conscious decision to read everything, at least up until a point. I think I'm getting to the place now where I've read it, you know, I've seen every opinion, but I did make the, like, I wanna know what people think. I always knew that there were gonna have people this, that don't like this, but I guess the only thing that really annoys me is when people are like saying that the people that are liking the movie are, are like lying or it, or it's like some kind sure. of conspiratorial hype yeah. machine.
0: No, the truth is I followed you, I messaged you, and was like, hey man, your movie looks fucking cool. And you were like, sweet, thanks man, you should go see it. And I did, and now we're talking. I've been on this platform for 13 years, and I have seen many people go about talking about content. And I have seen many people, some of them big, some of them small, in regards to their viewership, uh, accuse others of things like that. And it's fucking bullshit, man like it's just it is interesting I and mean, you like what you like well totally fine i'm not talking about like
1: totally fine if you don't like the movie but it's funny to me when people are thinking that it's it is possible that you may like something that other yeah. people don't like, like and vice versa like this is a possibility in the realm of the brain in reality like there's not much marketing going i made the two trailers something that's actually very important to me is i, I do hate when i see a poster or a movie trailer and you see the quotes taken from reviews, and and some of them are edited, or it's like kind of a little bit like one word out of context. I really am allergic to that, so I made sure that all the quotes from the reviews were not edited and they were true to the spirit of the review.
0: So you yeah. shot the outwaters, also. I'm assuming with the people you were close to.
1: I didn't. Once again, I was working at Greenpeace, nonprofit, could barely afford to pay rent, so the ends of my paychecks were what I used to make the Outwaters. At the time when I started making it, I didn't have a producer, didn't have a crew. There's no company behind me. It was me and my friends. The cast was the crew. It was just us out there. Aside from a couple of days I had my other friend from Greenpeace drive out to the desert to get sh- help get a shot. Because I could not pay anybody and we were all doing it for the love of making art. Everybody on the movie got points or a percentage
0: that's good. So Yeah, that's good.
1: But yeah, no, like we didn't really it didn't really cost anything to make it. I just made it. The story was born of knowing the
0: resources that I had. When it comes to shooting the Outwaters, there's not a studio or a production company saying, you have 20 days, but you have 15 days. So how long did it take you to shoot this one?
1: Desert shooting days, a combined total of 25 days of actual shooting, but it was too big shoot to send in a bunch of little tiny ones over the course of two years. Now, I shot the whole movie and thought I was finished with it within like a couple months. And then because I did not have the pressure of a deadline or financial backers or anything at the time, I was like, well, the movie is not good enough yet. So i want to keep working on it. So I'd put it together, do elaborate test screening feedback sessions with people, make them fill out three page reports of what they hated and liked and thought worked, didn't work. And then I'd get new ideas, try them out. Keep editing it was like a three-year process but part of that was because i could and it was fun and i wanted to keep working on it until i felt like it was done
0: i understand that right now you're going through a period where it's like my movie just came out and it's my baby and now the public has it and that's tough and i'm going to go through that too it's not something that anyone looks forward to i've talked to filmmakers just in the few episodes i've done who've done many movies And I've talked about those first initial, like, oh God, like, you know, the first time you see someone who just doesn't give a shit about you, say something negative about something you created, it's difficult. But the truth is, man, I heard about your movie organically, meaning through buzz, through just people that I trusted saying, this is special, this is different. This isn't like everything else. And that's why you're gonna get some hate, because it isn't like everything else. People go to the movies or they rent something because they want something that's familiar that they think they might enjoy. Your movie isn't familiar, and that's one of the things I love about it. And I think that the people already notice that, and they're going to notice that. It'll have a legacy. I mean, not everybody loved Terrifier 2, but it made a lot of money at the box office, and it will probably be a midnight movie staple for many years. Not everybody loves Rink*, but for its budget, it made a lot of money at the box office and will probably be a midnight movie staple for many years. And I genuinely feel the same way for your film, man. I, I think that you made a special movie and that you should be proud of it.
1: Thanks. No, I mean, something I should, I, I do like my, for my time at Greenpeace and facing so much rejection while trying to sign people up to save like dolphins and stuff, there's like getting your door slammed in your face and like to have people tell you to oh, fuck yourself out front of a Whole Foods. You hold on to the negative things because the lizard brain stuff holds on to negative and you have to actually consciously like hold on to positive things longer in your brain it's easy to get stuck on negative things but then i remember like there's people that have watched outwaters like five times already these two girls drove down from san francisco who had already seen the movie just to see the q a like drove seven hours to come see the q a there it's all awesome
0: Again, I have to say I've been doing this for a long time, and I've I've really tried to study the way audiences and critics react to movies. It's been something I've really been privy to, like being literally in the room for the like the way people talk about movies and, and the way movie trends happen. it's it's something I've tried to think about when I write and then forget about entirely. and Write whatever the fuck I want to write. Yeah. But the point is that your movie has the potential of having that type of impact on people like that who want to analyze things who want to ask how it came to be because it it doesn't feel normal it doesn't feel like the way it normally goes a distributor picks up a movie or or you get financing or whatever from some rich guy in france and then you go make a movie Everything about the way movies like yours or Skinwalker, or Paranormal Activity or Blair Witch Project, the production element of just got to make this, have to, I don't care, I will detonate the wall that's in front of me to get into this industry. That's what I fucking love about hearing stories like this of just like not doing a single thing traditionally because you found a way in and it was your way and no one else could have found that way. And other people are going to try to copy off that, but they're not going to be able to because only you were able to do it
1: knowing that my silent black and white art house feature was not going to be done for a while because it needed a score and also knowing from the beginning that that one was not going to be something that most people are going to want to see my plan was to finish a feature that i could make on my own with little money and keep making it until it was ha- i felt good enough or good and then my plan was just to enter festivals and i thought that it would get good reviews from critics if it were at festivals and then i thought that good reviews from critics and audiences would get a distribution. So. I got into a few festivals that got good reviews, and and that's how it got into bigger festivals, and that's how Bloody Disgusting Santa and I saw it at Panic Fest, so then they reached out.
0: In that moment when they reached out, did you want to celebrate? Were you excited, or was it terrifying? Did it feel surreal, you know, to have that step? It was just I wanted to make
1: sure that they were cool, and I trusted them, and that they cared about physical media.
0: Hell yeah, man.
1: It's very important to me that any movie I make that is a feature will wind up on physical media. So that was that was something I was, I was talking to them in the initial meeting about like clear Blu-ray cases and, and reversible sleeves <laughs> and slip cases and how would they do the art and I also don't want to do a making of the online for this one personally, but I wanted to make companion short films that go along. So I was all just like kind of work brain, like just making sure that they seem like trustworthy human beings and that I liked them and that we spoke the same language and luckily like they're awesome, so it worked out.
0: Behind me is a giant wall of DVDs and Blu-rays that Robbie can see, but you can't. Haha.
1: <laughs> Mine is around the corner, by the way. Oh,
0: good, good. And so, collapses a lot because I don't have
1: shelves because I'm poor.
0: That It hasn't been sold, this one. This one's staying, I hope. I was talking with David Pryor, who made The Empty Man, and The Empty Man still has no physical release, despite being a 20th Century Fox film that Disney, of course, bought. And then there was just nothing. There's no DVD. There's no Blu-ray. Nothing. It's just a streaming movie that exists in random places. And this is even more strange because david Pryor was the behind the scenes director for all of david fincher's movies from fight club to dragon tattoo he worked on the paper bag fight club dvd release all that physical media and at home media stuff was very important to him and to not have the empty man physically released in any way with a commentary is it hurts him still to this day so i like hearing that you're that much of a champion for it
1: i would have never signed anything and i will continue to never sign anything that doesn't include a guarantee of a, at least a Blu ray release. Yeah, that's snarled. So luckily, my producer, Bo Geno, who I asked to help me once the movie had initially been put together and he got to see it. Bo and I worked at After Dark Films together back when I was in my early 20s. That's so how I knew Bo. And he does also post production stuff. He works on Yellowstone and 1923
0: and The, the Taylor Sheridan verse.
1: Yes. And he worked on all Gregoraki's movies and he's, Bo's wonderful. So luckily, like Bo knows what's important to me and he knows. He was, you know, I got him on board with the physical media side of things. That's great. There will be no movie of mine that doesn't have a physical release. And if for example, like for people that are maybe are working on their own things, there's ways you can, if the company that wants to distribute it, doesn't want to do a physical media, then you get something in that contract that says you can make your own and sell it on your own. There's a lot of dogma around some of these things, but you also can just say, fuck you if you need to.
0: Just do it yourself. I mean, that's been your whole motto is just doing it yourself, just getting it made irregardless of the the circumstances.
1: Well, you know, no one's going to just recognize you in the coffee shop.
0: You hey, know. guy at Greenpeace, you know what? Yeah. You should make a movie. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> well, look, yeah. man, I, I mean what I say. I really like your movie. I think it's special. I think it's actually scary. I think it's very unsettling. And I also think it's inspiring. I love seeing movies like this where people just said, got to make it. It's got to happen. We're going to make it, doesn't matter how long. So thanks for making The Outwaters, first off. And please, to the listeners, check out the film. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Robbie. What's coming up next for you? The
1: new feature, Tinsman Road, is going to premiere at the Unnamed Footage Festival in San Francisco. It's going to play at the Balboa Theater on March 24th, along with two companion films to Outwaters, the prequel and the epilogue short films that I made for the Blu-ray, initially. <laughs> but awesome. they'll play in a movie theater back-to-back. So Unnamed Footage Festival, there'll be a few more projects coming up. And Tinsman Road's a found footage shot on mini-DV, 4x3, real rugged, guerrilla filmmaking. That's the way to um, do it. found footage movie that is actually, for people that don't like The Outlers, is actually totally different. It's more straightforward narrative and characters, and it's like a mystery drama with horror. So I'm pretty excited to see what people think of that.
0: Well, thank you so much again, Robbie, for joining us. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks.